Thank you, Todd and Emily. You could just put that on repeat for a few more verses, and I'd be really content. So that was beautiful. Thank you guys so much for that. Good morning again. My name is John Dunning. As I said earlier, it's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. I don't get to do this a whole lot with you, but I'm always thankful for every opportunity, even even in the midst of a busy week. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me in them to 1 John? 1 John might be a little confusing because there's also a book called John, and there's also a 2 John and a 3 John. This first John is going to be, it's five chapters long and it's near the end of your Bibles. If you want to turn there with me and follow along as we consider these, ver- these words together in just a moment. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, th- this past weekend, actually several of us met with our presbytery, which is the regional gathering of our churches. And I want to just let you know, it's always encouraging to be able to do that, to, to meet with brothers and sisters from other congregations, to hear what's going on in their midst, to hear the, the struggles and the, and the joys and to be able to share those together. Also, I want to let you know, I think as the calendar reads, we may be hosting next fall. So in a, roughly a year from now, you're going to be hearing more about this. And part of our gathering together, I mean, the whole thing is public, or most of it is public. But in particular, on Friday night, there's a worship service. And I would just encourage you to think about coming out to that. Again, to see other people from around the state and around the region gathering together for worship to hear God's word. And it's a great opportunity to, to be a part of that. And I would encourage you to avail yourselves of that opportunity. This morning, we're going to consider together 1 John chapter 1. I'm actually going to read in just a moment through chapter, through chapter 2, verse 2. I told Brian, the, Pastor Brian the wrong verses when I gave him these a couple weeks ago. We're going to be considering 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 2. As we approach God's word, though, I want to consider this. What's your response when you know you've done something wrong and you've been found out? Do you have a knee-jerk reaction, whether it's at home or at work? with family or with friends, when somebody's caught you doing something wrong or saying something wrong or misspeaking, what's your response? How do you, how do you respond to that? There's a story that was told in my family as I was growing up about one of my older brothers um, that as a very little boy was amused by splashing the water in the toilet on a regular basis. Now my parents had the foresight to, to know that this is probably not a habit we want him to continue doing. And so they, they told, they informed him one day, and this was before I was born, he's older than I am. They informed him that one day that, that if they catch him doing it again, that he would get a spanking. My brother must have said something like, okay, I understand the, I understand the situation. Of course, he was too drawn to this, and he couldn't stay away. One evening, my parents heard him playing in the toilet, and as one of them walked to the bathroom to, to get him, he must have heard them coming, and he came out from around the bathroom, came around around the corner, spanking himself. Apparently, one, of the, one out of a sense of guilt as well as a desire to go ahead and fulfill the consequences set out for him. He's going to take, you know, as if he's saying to mom and dad, I got this, I'll take care of it, no need to do anything else here, it's all done. How do you respond when you're found out, when you're caught? You've got an apology ready to go, don't you? You've got that list of things that, you, that you're about to do differently. Many of us are sure that we have a good idea how God sees us in our sin. And therefore we have planned out how we're to respond when we, when we sin and when we get found out, don't we? We have our list of things that we're going to do to make it better next time and, and promise and promise and promise that it won't happen again. What about when it's not simply one act or circumstance? How do you respond to the need to bring change into your life? What's, your, what's on your list? What's your attack plan? What's your approach? I want to bring these questions to the scriptures this morning and consider what the Bible actually says and how it directs us in these situations. As I said, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing, to you the, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let me pray one more time as we consider these things together. Gracious, merciful, holy God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us, let them take us to the place where you are, that we might behold you. And as as Ryan prayed earlier today, I pray again that we would approach your word with attentive hearts, expecting to be changed by the work of your spirit. Father, there is not enough in us. There's not enough wisdom. There's not enough truth. There's not enough knowledge. There's not enough insight. There's not enough creativity to bring change upon ourselves. With you, there is all of this and so much more. We look to you and ask that you'd speak now clearly through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're not familiar with the, the, this, le- this book of 1 John, it's, it's actually a letter written by a man named John, probably to the church at Ephesus, which is one of the cities in the ancient world that was one of the greater cities in the ancient world and plays a prominent role in the New Testament. But if you're not familiar with this book, in, in the, near the end of chapter 5, in verse 13, we read these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John wrote, John penned these, this, this letter to to assure Christians that as they struggled with doctrine, as they struggled with their own lives, as they struggled with their own affections, that they would find assurance in God's faithfulness to them. He's writing to believers, those who trust in Jesus, those who've trusted in him, those who are striving to live their lives according to the word of God, and who are wondering, will he let go of me? Is this for real or is this something I dreamed up? John is writing to bring assurance to them. That's the the agreed upon purpose of this. But if you're paying attention in the passage that I just read, you know that he said several other reasons why he wrote these words as well. In verse 3, he says, so that you may know that you have fellowship with us. So that you too may have fellowship with us. In verse 4, he said, so that our joy may be complete. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, so that you may not sin. You see, John's approach here, he's writing as a pastor to a congregation whom he dearly loves. He knows them well and cares for them deeply. 
He longs for them to know community, to know joy, and to know freedom over sin, and ultimately to know what it is to live truly full lives. I wonder how many of us would today would acknowledge that we wrestle with community, with loneliness. I wonder if, we, if you find yourself wrestling with joy, thinking it's just around the corner, but it's not here yet. I wonder where you are struggling with sin most this morning. In those moments, what do you expect to hear from the Lord? We, we expect something, don't we? We expect him to say something. What do we expect? Pastor and writer Eugene Peterson once described our condition this way. He said, our lives are a muddle of shopping lists and good intentions, guilty adulteries, whether fantasized or actual, and episodes of heroic virtue, desires for holiness mixed with greed for self-satisfaction. We hope to do better someday, beginning maybe tomorrow or at the latest next week. We hope to do better than where we are now, maybe someday, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. What's your tomorrow? What's your next week? Is the question I want us to consider. In our loneliness, in our joylessness, and in our sin, what I want you to hear more than anything else this morning is that John takes us directly to Jesus because that's what we need most. That's who we need most. Notice the poetic move which, with which this letter begins. John doesn't, he chooses to describe more than, direct, than actually name his subject from the beginning. Notice how he begins in verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning... Now those words might stand out to you if you're familiar with the scriptures. John's gospel, the same one who wrote this letter, also wrote one of the accounts we have of Jesus' life. And these words are reminiscent of John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. It points us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now what you have to know is the only thing that exists from the beginning is the uncreated God. It's fitting then that he adds in, in, in verse 1, he speaks of the word of life. He, he, he goes on, which, which is another way of saying the life-giving word. He then calls it simply the life, the eternal life which was, in, which was with the Father in verse 2. He, he's describing something, and he's not telling us directly what it is, but what we're what we, reading between the lines, what we hear him say is, he's talking about the eternal Son of God, the one we know as the Christ, as Jesus. And that's where he takes us from the beginning. He's describing Jesus. But look again, at, look again at these first few verses. Notice the verbs that, that, he, that, he, that he speaks of here. Again, looking in verse 1. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He goes on in verse 2. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you this, which was with the Father. In verse 3, we have seen and, and, and heard, we proclaim to you. He's using these words to describe his senses. And yet, what is he describing? He's describing something eternal. To, to, to describe something that we can feel, that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can see, that we can hear. Something as real as this podium, and yet what's he talking about? He's talking about the eternal Son of God. Do you see and hear what, 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 the, what my trip reader's up here? He's using his experience of his senses to describe his interaction with the eternal. From what we know in other places, he's talking about Jesus here. So he's talking about his interaction with the eternal, with the uncreated, with the one who has always existed, and in such a way as, as, if, as if he's sitting across the table with the, from this person, which he was at one point in his life. You see, what John is doing, what's important here to note is, again, looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, notice what he says. We have heard, we have seen, we, we, we. What he's describing to us 
is, is something that's highly intentional. That which was made manifest, he says. That's what, that which was made visible. That which became very real and was made known to us. John's describing what, what he's experienced as a first-hand witness. He's not saying, I read about this in some book some, somewhere one day. Or this story my parents told me. He's saying, he's saying to us, I experienced this. I experienced eternity sitting across the table from me, walking down the road with him, asking him questions, weeping with him, seeing him get angry at death, seeing him laugh at the stupid things we would do, and so on and so forth. He's describing this as an eyewitness account. The eternal and the finite bound together. I keep thinking of an image, uh, what, what image comes to mind when I, when I think about this, and the best I can do is, you know those, those, those um, the, the joke cans where you know, it says something like, you know, can of beans, and you open it up and the snake springs out? It's like trying to shove a, a, one of those snakes back into that can to get it closed off, and when the spring wants to do everything but, uh, except go back in the can, it wants to bounce around the room and be constantly moving, and it's it can be tough to stick it in there. That's, that's what comes to mind when I read these verses. The idea of the eternity stepping into the world that we inhabit. He's talking about Jesus. And what he's, trying to, what he's trying to help us to say is, he said, I experienced the eternal one as flesh and blood. And I want you to look at Jesus as you struggle. When we consider Jesus, we are considering the eternal Think about the words of Psalm 2, which the New Testament tells us is about Jesus. That while the nations stand against the Lord, he responds with laughter because he has set his son on the throne. And the Lord will make his enemies but a footstool for his son. And yet there is hope for all who take refuge in him. This is the one we're called to consider. This is Jesus. When we're considering Jesus, we're also considering he who is truly human. He entered your world, your world of academic bureaucracy, your world of diapers and toys spread across the room, your world of homework and projects and exams and interviews, your middle management cubicle life, your uncertainty about the future. He is with you. He walked among us. He is with us. And the scripture, what we have, the account that we have in the scriptures is largely first-hand experience. It's not hearsay. It's people saying together and acknowledging and admitting, we knew this Jesus because he was with us. And you can know him too because he, he continues to be with us. In your loneliness, in your lack of joy, and in your struggle against sin, the invitation is to consider this one, to consider Jesus. Your circumstances are not beyond his attention. The scriptures tell us that he has kept count of our tossings, that, it, that our tears are put in his bottle, that he's aware of everything that we've experienced, that he endured suffering in this life so that we don't have to suffer alone. And just to, put, just to add to this, know this, nothing you bring to him will ever surprise him. Nothing you've done will ever shock him. No amount of anger or frustration or questions will keep him away from you. We have to know this, that this is the one who is with us. The eternal Son of God became man and continues in his humanity as he sits at the right hand of the Father forever and ever and reigns on the throne forever and ever. This is the one who is with you. The invitation is to, is to consider Jesus. When we go to verse 5, as we hear, we hear the content of, of what the message that he heard, he tells us in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What he's telling us is this, the invisible God was made visible in Jesus. 
And there's at least two ways to think about this picture of light when it comes to God. Part of what, he's to, what Scripture speaks of when it speaks of God as light, we would say is maybe an intellectual approach to understanding. In other words, that, that, that the light brings truth and understanding. It brings clarity to our world. It helps us navigate things because it's, it gives us perspective to understand the world in which we live. But there's also this element of, of, of good and bad when it comes to light and darkness, that there's a moral feature to it, that it represents purity, that it represents truth, that it represents wisdom, that God is holy. There's no shade in him whatsoever. He is not some mixture of light and dark. He is light. He is good. He is true. In fact, in John 3, after Jesus met with Nicodemus that night, we read these words, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And yet here, John tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And what's fascinating is he, he invites us not only to consider Jesus, but in light of this, no pun intended, he invites us to consider ourselves as well. And I want to walk through verses 6 through 10 and just note, notice what we see here. Look at verse 6, how he reads this. Because the right response is this. If God is light and, him, and in him is no darkness at all, we rightfully ask the question, what does that mean for us? How do we relate to this one who is light? Because I'm not always light. I'm, there are times when I'm scared of the light because of what it will reveal. Well, notice where John takes us beginning in verse 6. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we're in relationship with him, and we choose to walk only in hiding, only walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. And notice what he says, what he adds to this in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now part of the question here is, what does it mean to walk in the light? Because if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, what does it mean for us? I'll tell you what I think it doesn't mean and what I think scripture, what we see in Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to live a morally perfect life because you can't. And we'll see how, how John tells us that himself in a moment. But what, what he's not setting us up for is a standard that you can never attain to. As if you've got to keep striving and striving and one day you might get closer and closer but never quite reach the light. The invitation is to walk not in your own light, not in your own power, not in your own wisdom, not in your own truth, but to walk in the light that is God, that is Jesus, the one who Jesus reveals. Again, look again at verse 7 and notice what he includes near the end. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, that, that, that's, what, that's what allows us to be in the light. It's the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sin that allows us to be there. It's, and then no, we add to this, notice what we see in verse 8, because he goes on to say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you're assuming that there's a, morally, there's a morally perfect standard that you must attain in order to walk in the light, verse 8 is cutting that short very quickly as we need it to. We need these words to be true. If you say, if you say you're perfect, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. Again, look at verse 9, because there, there yet remains hope. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we say that we do have sin, what happens? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how the logic builds? The call is to walk, is in, the, walk in the light as he is in the light, as, as, in fellowship with him, in relationship with him. 
And yet, if, 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 we, if, we, if we do that under pretense, if we do that assuming that we have to be perfect, and we pretend to be perfect, we're lying, we're deceiving ourselves. We need the blood of Jesus to cover us, to make it so that we can walk, where, where he, to follow in his light. And he rounds us out in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Any part of you thinking you've got to be perfect for God to love you and accept you is a lie to yourself. It's inconsistent with the word of God and it's inconsistent with who God is himself. Please hear that. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear that. If you think it is on your shoulders to be the perfect mom, to be the perfect dad, to be the perfect son, the perfect daughter, to be the perfect employee, because it is on your shoulders to figure that out, please know that you will not attain that in this life. And I say that as much as I can without an ounce of cynicism. The reality is, if you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're not being honest with yourself, with the scriptures, or with God. With God. That's what's set before us. We need to look at ourselves, beloved. Would we actually claim this, some may ask? Would we actually claim to walk in the light while we walk in darkness? Would we actually claim to be without sin? Some have done it for sure. Others may approach it this way. Apple's founder, Steve Jobs, was well known to have, to have developed something what, what his coworkers called his reality distortion field. And this was basically Jobs' way of living, his own, living in his own world and by his own truth. In other words, if a coworker disagreed with one of his design flaws, with one of his designs, he'd simply dismiss them and says, no, this is what we're doing, and ignore it. When his girlfriend found out she was expecting, he did the same thing. He completely denied and ignored her and set her aside and dismissed her. Because his reality, what was most important? Beloved, that's what we're doing when we're saying we're without sin. Others of us may simply redefine what sin is. When we're sitting across the table with a young freshman a few years ago, looking at a passage of scripture, and I asked her how she understood what sin to be, and not having no idea what she would tell me. And her response was this, sin is me not living true to myself. I'll be honest with you, at that moment, I didn't know what to say. And I just kind of fumbled through my words for a while because I'd never heard anything like that. But that's what we do. We, 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 we redefine sin so that it's convenient for us. So we don't have to think about it. So we don't have to, to worry about it. So that we don't need to change. But the scriptures invite us to see God who is light and to see ourselves in comparison. And what it reveals to us more and more is our need. It reveals to us our loneliness, our lack of joy, and ultimately our sin, doesn't it? But let me say this. Isn't it interesting that the thing that all of us share without exception, that which is familiar to each and every one of us, that, that, that we indeed have, have in common, is that which separates us, which drives us into hiding, which leaves us terrified of being found out. Isn't that fascinating? Our sin shouldn't surprise us. When someone in this room has to go to you and say, I spoke wrongly about you to another person, I need you to forgive me. Or when, when you as a parent has to go to one of your children and say, I spoke out of anger, please forgive me. Why does that surprise us? Why do we pretend like it doesn't happen? We all know that feeling. We all live in this world in which there is sin. We are all hurt by one another. We're all hurt by others and we all hurt one another. Why do we pretend as if it doesn't exist? The light shines, 
The darkness doesn't like the light, but what the darkness most needs more than anything else is the light to shine even greater, to shine into our lives. But John doesn't end there in this section. And I realize that there's a big number two probably by the last two verses that we want to consider. But those weren't there in the original scriptures, and I think the flow of the passage actually goes through these first two verses of chapter two. It reminds me of what John Newton once wrote to, to one of his dear, dear friends. He wrote these words, It is good to have one eye upon ourselves, but the other should be fixed on him who stands in relation of Savior, husband, head, and shepherd. In him we have righteousness, peace, and power. Yes, we need to look at ourselves, but the invitation is actually to look back at Jesus. Notice where John takes us. First of all, in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children... And just so you know, that, that's not a pejorative term there. He, he's writing that out of deep affection for these. And chances are that John is writing these words as a much older man at this point in his life, near the end of his life. And he, only, he calls them little, his little children only out of deep affection. But he goes on to say this, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. His desire, his hope, his prayer is that we would stand against sin in our lives, that we, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. But what, what he says here in verse 1, he says, Jesus is our comforter, our intercessor. Jesus is for you. He's not wagging his finger at you every time you sin, every time you have a, have a thought that, that's not right or take, have an action or a wor words that come to your mouth that aren't right. Jesus is for you. Remember Paul, Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is your comforter. He is interceding for, for you. He's on your side. He wants more for you. But notice in verse, again at the end of verse 1, we, we, speak of, we hear Jesus spoken of as the righteous. One commentator wrote these words. He said, there is no chance that what Jesus urges in God's presence will be rejected because it fails to measure up. You see, Jesus is standing before the Father, not because the Father is against us and Jesus is for us and Jesus has to convince him to be for us, but he is, our, he is interceding for us with the Father according to the will of the Father, but he, he is keeping us in mind to the Father because of his deep love for us. And the Father has him there because of his love for us as well. And there's no chance that Jesus will ask the wrong thing for you. There's no chance that he will misspeak in the presence of his Father and our Father. He is the righteous. But look at verse 2. John adds to this these words, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is our propitiation. Now a lot of ink has been spilled over these, this, this word in the last century because some, some of your Bibles might use the word expiation, which means a covering over, a setting aside. But the stronger word propitiation is actually what, what's intended here. And it's defined by this, the turning away of the wrath of God by an acceptable sacrifice. It's not merely a setting aside. It's not merely a, a dismissing of our sin. It's actually fully and finally dealing with our sin and conquering that sin. Because the right response of our Heavenly Father to our rebellion against Him, which is what our sin is, is His wrath. Which is not abusive, it's not rash, it's His right response to anything that would stand against His perfect perfection and His holiness. And that wrath is satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. The one who intercedes for you is the one who has sacrificed for you. He's the one who died for you, the one who lived for you, and the one who is raised again for you. 
What I want you to hear is simply hear, here is this, is this. What 1 John 2, 2 is telling you is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to cover your sin. Jesus is what you need. He wants you to know that Jesus is enough. You can't come to him with anything that will shock him, that will surprise him. You can't come to him with anything in which he will say, sorry, I'm all out today. Maybe come back tomorrow, maybe we'll have more tomorrow. That is not who he is, that is not what he's about. He's simply telling us this, Jesus is enough for your sin. In your loneliness, in your struggle with joy, and in your sin, Jesus is enough. Beloved, this is our call to life together. That's why we, when we, we think of the, 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 the trio here of loneliness and joylessness and sin, and John saying, this is why I'm writing to you. Because we don't stand against sin by ourselves. We don't stand against loneliness by ourselves. Is that the most obvious thing I could say right now? Of course we don't stand by loneliness by ourselves because it is something we're called to together. I want to close with simply this. The promise of the gospel in the words of uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. He said, he sums this all up this way. He says, there is a living Savior who because he died and rose again is sufficient to save you and indeed each and every person who comes to him in faith. There is fullness of grace in Christ crucified and you too may find salvation in his name. Beloved, that's what we need this morning. That's what we need every day of our lives. To know that in our loneliness, in our struggle with joy and in our sin, Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's plenty in our world that would tell us that, our sin, is, that sin is a fabric of our imagination. That we simply need to, to change our definitions and we simply need to do something different and we'll be fine. But Father, there's more in our world that, that, that tells us that that's not true, and we pray that by the truth of the gospel we might find hope. Would you continue to lead us now as we consider your table? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.